0: Mm-hmm. where we're at this morning and want to speak to the subject of a grateful faith. You know, as I walk with Jesus and um, been leading in some contexts in the local church for 25-ish years, um, what, what I've learned is that because we're all humans, we have a tendency to be able to only see right here. We live in the moment, we live in what is immediate, and we have a hard time seeing the fuller picture, which often will lead us to a place of lack of gratitude. We, we just don't know the fuller picture. I've been here as your senior pastor long enough that most of you are new, which is a crazy thing for me. Like, One, one it tells them I'm getting old. Number two, it tells me I've been here a while. And number three, it tells me the Lord is doing something special, right? We're living in some of the greatest days this church has ever had. Definitely some of the greatest days, if not the greatest day in the last decade. Just absolutely phenomenal, attendance-wise. And we we baptized just this fall, nine, ten people, somewhere around that mark. Uh, I think we're ahead of where we were last year. Last year was the largest number of people following Jesus and professing that through baptism that we've had in at least a decade. So we're walking and living in some really, really good days, but sometimes we just don't see it. Like, it's right here. We just see the immediate. We see what's happening this week and maybe the next week, and, and some, you just haven't been here long enough to know the story, and so I sit in that position that I can Tell you the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of God's people. And and so as I looked at this passage this week and and the story of these ten lepers we're going to get in, man, it just reminds you that gratitude is part of what it means to follow Jesus. Just grateful for what the Lord is doing and has been doing. We just came out of Thanksgiving which is a wonderful holiday. I think I talked about it last week or the week before of kind of the genesis of how that became a national holiday for us. You know, the first president of our country, the, con- the Congress came to him and says, we want you to declare a day of Thanksgiving. And George Washington did that. Then it was sort of solidified by Abraham Lincoln in 1863 when he made it an official. Here's when we're going to do that in November. And then it was tweaked a little bit later, I think in the 20s. But those two presidents put it on the map. But long before Abraham Lincoln and George Washington were saying, as a nation, we need to take time and step back and say, we are thankful to the Lord, the pilgrims modeled that. You know, those folks came over on the Mayflower long before that, and, and they experienced an incredibly bleak year. I mean, facing conditions that, that caused most of them to be buried. In fact, it's said that, that the pilgrims there in Massachusetts dug more graves than they built huts that first year. Most of those people died. All of them experienced hardship. So H.W. Westermeyer reminds us when he says, no Americans have been more impoverished than those who nevertheless set aside a day of thanksgiving. You see, gratitude for the pilgrims was an expression of their faith in Almighty God, trusting him, believing him. Thanking him for what he had already done in that previous year. The Roman philosopher Cicero astutely said, a thankful heart is not only the greatest of virtue, but it's the parent of all other virtues. You know, I believe Cicero was on to something. I believe he's correct in saying that, that gratitude is that chief of virtues you see the disposition of the gra- of gratitude seems to be the exact opposite of, of that which radiates from the hearts of those who are living in rebellion against god rebellion of, that they have that's against god radiates itself in selfishness and not selflessness radiates itself in the priority of self i want i will have i will become if you look through the Old Testament and you begin to read uh, the prophecy of Isaiah, I would say that many scholars, at least the ones that I've read, would argue that what we see in Isaiah chapter 14, speaking of Lucifer's fall, it's, it's cloaked in the language of Babylon and the fall of Babylon. Most scholars believe and would tell us that here it's hearkening back to Lucifer's rebellion against God and his subsequent fall. You see, Lucifer once enjoyed great favor and great blessings from the Lord, but they were never enough for him. There was never a sense of satisfaction. Lucifer continued to say I must have, I must be, I must gain. In fact, he was seeking to be God himself. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 14 beginning in verse 11. He says, "Your pomp, your pomp has brought down To Sheol. It's brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. There's a picture for you. How you were fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who lay the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Here comes the word from God. But you were brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. You see, pride is the parent of rebellion. Pride is the parent of selfishness. Pride is the parent of dissatisfaction. And yet, on the other hand, gratitude is the parent of faithfulness. Gratitude is the parent of selflessness. Gratitude is the parent of satisfaction and every other virtue of life. Sin, which is the default nature of humanity, emulates its master. Who is the master? Satan is the master. You see, Satan is never satisfied. Satan is never thankful. Isaiah is saying here in chapter 14, you basically had it all. You were the prized possession of God, and yet you desired more. He didn't just desire a better position. He desired to be God himself. Is that not what happened in the Garden of Eden? When humanity, Adam, who is the apex of creation, was told, everything is yours, enjoy it, live it out, take it, it's yours, but don't touch that, or don't eat that. What did they do? Man, I want that. Why? Because Adam listened to the lie, just like Satan, he believed that he deserved something that was not his, he deserved to be God himself, and plunged all of humanity into the curse. Therefore, the thanklessness that we see in our culture today, it's nothing new. It's nothing new. In fact, Ecclesiastes would tell us there's nothing new under the sun. And so we know that it's not new. It's just a reiteration of that old rebellious spirit. Alexander White, that great Scottish preacher, understood this. In the 19th century, he visited one of his elderly ladies in the church who complained at length about everything and everyone. Ever met a person like that? Don't raise your hand or at least don't point to people. We've all met people like that. You've probably been that person at some point in your life. He sat there a while. He listened to her fuss and, and, and complain and yada, yada, yada. Finally, he got up, and the only thing that Pastor White said is he quoted from Psalm 103, verse 2 that says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You know, I believe as I think about where we are as a nation and a culture, locally and nationally, I don't believe there's been a Another time in history where people have had so much, but with so little gratitude. Many years ago, Arkant Hughes commenting on this reality, he said this He said, Consider the typical Ivy League sophomore. So, right there, privilege, right? From birth, he has lacked nothing. He has had loving, doting parents and grandparents, the best in medical care, music lessons, tennis lessons, family vacations, summer sailing school, trendy wardrobes, religious instruction, European educational experiences, special work experiences, distinctive cars and credit cards. Yet he is an angry, ungrateful, depressed poor me. He appreciates nothing. He regards his family as a nuisance. He focuses on shortcomings and slights in his upbringing, holding on to the grudges with a death grip. It never occurs to him that some of his happy friends have had it rougher than him. Hughes goes on to say that the ungratefulness has always been endemic to the human soul and pointed out that it was cresting in Generation X. You know who Generation X is? You're looking at a member of Generation X. I would argue this morning that the thanklessness we see in our culture didn't crest, unfortunately, with my generation. Those of us who are in our 40s and 50s. It has gone on and increased in the millennials and now in Gen X. How do I know that? Because you look around the culture and there is such great ingratitude, such great restlessness, such great thanklessness, And so could it be that many of the societal problems that we would relate to mental health issues are nothing other than the side effects of ingratitude, that we don't understand the blessings that we have, that we don't understand and take to heart that we have a good God who wants to pour his blessing and favor out on us, but instead we look at all the things we don't have and we say, we want that. Better yet, we deserve that. That I want that, and I'm going to do everything possible to get that. We're just a bunch of thankless, ungrateful, ungrateful hypocrites. And You say, well, that pastor, you're talking about the people outside the four walls of this church. Not all the time. You see, that, pers- that, that personality, or I should say that, that spirit, that heart, isn't just for those outside of the kingdom of God. If we're not careful, it becomes part of the kingdom of God, or at least our Approach to the kingdom of God. We're not immune to this disease. The disease of thanklessness can attach itself to any believer if we are not careful and if we are not intentional with our gratitude. So surely we've met an ungrateful Christian. But think of that term, an ungrateful Christian. That is an oxymoron. That is a contradiction. An ungrateful Christian. This morning, are you an ungrateful Christian? This morning, do you count the blessings of God in your life? And you think, man, I'm so blessed. Sure, there's some things I wish I had. There's some things that I wish would have happened in my life. There's some things that I wish had happened differently. But I'm grateful for the blessing and the favor and the goodness and the direction and the provision of almighty God. Man, we need a serious dose of gratefulness in the church. This morning, as we move into this next pericope, Luke is going to remind us that a grateful faith never gets over the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. I think that's the problem with us at times. I'm speaking to us as believers this morning. But I think that we just forget who we were before we met Jesus. Did you know you don't deserve all the goodness that God's given you? You deserve a devil's hell. You know the worms that we just read about in Luke or Isaiah 14? That's what you deserve. You deserve the eternal worms there in the, in the presence of hell, the, the place of hell for all of eternity, rotting and decaying and living in torment. That's what every one of us deserve because we have all sinned and fall short of God's holiness and his glory. Though we have strived perhaps to do certain things. We always fall short because all of us are in a rebellion against God. It's only his grace that calls us and brings us into fellowship with him. Therefore, we must, we should, we ought to be eternally grateful for his grace and mercy. Look with me in Luke 17. Let's begin reading what Luke has to say about Jesus in verse 11. He says, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. We'll talk about that in a minute, but that's important. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. What a passage. Luke tells us here that on the outskirts of an unnamed village, on the borderlands between Samaria and Galilee, there were 10 leprous men, stood before Jesus, and all of them were in various stages of decay. With their clothing torn in in, in a case of perpetual mourning and their skeletal heads uncovered, they cried out with their lips saying, unclean, unclean, unclean. That's what a leper would have done every single day of his life or her life. These men looked like they had climbed out of the graves, but they were alive. They were sensitive human beings. They were feeling souls, living in the netherworld of society's fringe while they rotted away. That's what leprosy is. It's a skin condition that causes your flesh to rot. On this day, they shouted from a safe distance to Jesus, and they're begging him to have mercy on them why are they doing that? I got to believe it's because they heard the stories. I got to believe they heard from other people what Jesus had done with the blind and the sick and the lame and the dead and even those who were leprous. Luke 5.13. They had heard those stories, so they're loud and they're persistent and they're asking and begging Jesus to be merciful. Jesus saw and when Jesus heard them, what does he do? He immediately responds. But he does so differently than he's done before. In other cases, like Luke 5, he touched the leprous man and he's healed. In other situations, Jesus spoke healing onto them, right? In this case, he just says, go and show yourself to the priests. So their response to Jesus' command demanded faith. They had to put faith in what the Lord said to them. Now, as we think about this story, I think it's right to presume that not all of the lepers were of the same mind. You put 10 people together, you're going to have probably 10 different ideas. You put two Baptists together, you've got three ideas. So these are not Baptists. They're different. So a few of them, like, I don't know about this guy. He tells us to go show ourselves ourselves to the priest. I I, I don't know about that. I was expecting him to touch me. I was expecting him to speak uh, life over me. And he's telling me to go to the priest. I I don't know about this. Others are saying, man, we got to do this. And so they're they're talking about it. They're contemplating it. And they come to the conclusion, what else do we have to lose? We're going to rot. We're going to die. We're going to be in misery. Let's at least go show ourselves to the priest. And, And so they go and do or work to do exactly what the law would require of them, to show themselves to the priest when you have been healed. So they're believing Jesus on this command. And as they're walking to the priest, wherever that priest would have been, all of a sudden they're healed. All of a sudden transformation begins to take place in their life. It's a mass healing. Now there's no mirrors for them to kind of look at themselves, but they begin to see it in one another. So from cadaverous faces begins to reemerge ears and noses and eyebrows and lashes and hairlines. Feet that were minutes ago just toeless, ulcered stubs are suddenly whole, probably bursting the sandal that they're wearing. Naughty appendages began to grow fingers. Barnacled skin became soft and supple. It was literally like 10 new births taking place. And so if you are that person, imagine the celebration you're doing. They're kicking up dust, Right? Man, they're having a party. They've been healed. They've been brought from death to life. Luke tells us among the ten was a man who was a Samaritan. Now, John 4 would tell us in other places that normally Jews would have no dealings with Samaritans. This was true of Jews and it was true of Samaritans. They hated each other they had a racial, not just tension, they had a racial war against one another. And yet, nevertheless, in this situation, these 10 men put aside their racial differences and united around their common misery. What's that misery? We're lepers. We're outcasts. You're an outcast in Israel. I'm an outcast in Samaria. We got a commonality. We need community. We're a leper community. So a Samaritan... And we would presume nine Jews are healed by the Lord Jesus, and the Samaritan is the one who returns. Luke tells us when he did return, the Samaritan, he's not standing at a distance like he did before. He comes up to Jesus. He praises God for his healing, and he comes and bows before Jesus' feet. He comes in close proximity. Why? Because he's clean. He knows that he's been reunited in society. There is something amazing and miraculous that has taken place in his life. And so Luke uses this story here as a beautiful contrast between a life that is marked by sin and a life that is marked by redemption. You see, sin separates a person from the creator God, while the savior is the one who takes that barrier and removes it out of the way. And he brings that person in sin, separated from God, into relationship with the God who created them for himself. As we imagine what it would have been like to live such a life, I hope that we can understand why they cried out for mercy. Humanly speaking, this leper colony, these ten men, were hopeless. They had no hope whatsoever. There was no medical technology that would reverse the curse of leprosy. There was no pill to take. There was no infusion to to engage with. There was nothing except endure this until it takes your life. And then they met Jesus. And the one who was hopeless now has Hope. So we see this picture, and leprosy in the Bible is always juxtaposed over and against this idea of sin, bringing death into the life of humanity. And so we see this picture of hopeless death, resurrection life, and how that all happens. And so when we think about ourselves, I want us to see ourselves in the ten lepers, destined for death. Destined a hopeless existence and in need of God's great mercy. As We see this mercy that's granted. We see from one of the ten a right and proper response, and that is gratitude. This morning, I want to share with you three actions of a grateful faith that I believe are on full display in this story. First of all, a grateful faith acknowledges the lordship of Jesus. It acknowledges the lordship of Jesus. Look there at verse 13. These men lift up their voices and they said, Jesus, master. Jesus, master. You see, as I said earlier, these men had clearly heard the stories of Jesus. They'd heard people talking about miracles that were done in other villages and and all of the stories and, and healing and blind receiving sight, dead being resurrected, lepers being made whole again. And they heard about Jesus coming into their village. So when they heard that, they came to him, and they came seeking a miracle. And as they asked Jesus for help, they recognized here his authority by addressing him as master, Jesus, master. The word here in the Greek is the word epistetes, Here's something interesting about that. Luke is the only gospel writer to use this particular term. In fact, if we were to go to the other synoptic gospels of Matthew and Mark in those parallel passages where they're telling the same story, Matthew and Mark use terms like didaskalos, rabbi, and kurios. Here in the English, teacher, rabbi, which is a Hebrew term, and lord. But Luke uses the term epistetes, master. They're all conveying the same idea. It's a place, position, or a person of authority. It's also interesting that this is the only use of the title by non-disciples or those who are not following Jesus in Luke's gospel, which would confirm for us the leper's trust in Jesus' reputation. So when they hear about him coming in the village, they come before him and recognize his lordship. Jesus, there's no other hope for us. Jesus, we've seen the doctors, we've seen how we're outcast in society, we know what awaits us. It is a leper colony, and we're going to be in that decaying, miserable state until the day we die. But we see and we've heard of you, that you are Lord, that you can do the miraculous. And so we are faithing into you, trusting you, appealing to you as the master who can take care of this situation. Y'all tracking with me? Grateful faith acknowledges the lordship of Jesus. So these men acknowledge his lordship over disease and infirmities. Now, let's not read ahead here and think these men are saved. We'll get to that at the end. But these men are acknowledging his lordship over disease and infirmity. So for us, as we strive to see ourselves in these men, we need to understand that saving and redeeming faith begins with an acknowledgment of Jesus as Lord what did Paul say in Romans ten nine? If we will confess with our mouths Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God the Father has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. We see some terms here. If you will believe, if you will confess... Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That word in the Greek is sozo. It's the word that we see at the very end of verse 19 where Jesus pronounces over this leper, this Samaritan, go, you are well, you are saved. I'm getting ahead of myself, but keep that in mind there. So, As sinners, we're trying to see ourselves in these men. As sinners who are separated from God, who created us and desires to know us, like these lepers, we must acknowledge the lordship of Jesus and the power of Jesus over the terminal disease of sin separates us from God and affects all of us. You see, it's not just the really bad ones that need Jesus. It's everybody. You say, Pastor, I've been in church my whole life. I've been in church since nine months before. I actually took my first breath of air. I'm okay with Jesus. No, you're not. You're dead in trespasses and sins like the murderer and the... Anyone else you want to lay about there? Got to be careful. Start throwing labels out. People start throwing those back at me. Jesus is the only one who can cure and remove sin. So there's no cure for leprosy in the first century. So think about this. When a person's diagnosed back then with leprosy, it is a sentence of separation and death. You're now outcast. You're now outside the village or the camp. Likewise, for those who are in sin, there is no earthly cure. You can't come to a Baptist church enough. You can't give enough money. You can't help enough older ladies across the road. You can't do anything to wash that internal sin that's on your heart because it is who you are. It is your nature. You can't buy it away. You can't scrub it away. You can't work it away. It is who you are. It is your nature. It takes the blood of Jesus. It takes the grace of Jesus. It takes the mercy of Jesus to change you. You guys actually believe that stuff because that's weak. Man, that's, you ought to get excited about that this morning because that's where all of us have been. Those of us who know Jesus, that's where some of you this morning are. You're dead in your trespasses and sin, and you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need the cleansing power of Jesus upon your life. You need to be brought from death because you're a spiritual leper outside the camp of God, and he wants to bring you in. How do you do that? Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. And when you receive the mercy of God, you know how you'll know you've you've received that mercy and grace? There will be a gratefulness that wells up within you. There's a second action I want you to see. A grateful faith asks and believes Jesus for healing. Verse 13 goes on to say, Have mercy on us. He's saying, Lepers ask Jesus as the master to have mercy on them. So this call here for mercy is a request to someone of superior position to show compassion. We see this word and this appeal for mercy frequently without the gospels. Matthew uses it often. Matthew 9, Matthew 15, Matthew 17, Matthew 20. So here by asking of Jesus or for Jesus to have mercy on them, these men were pleading to be instantly healed and we grammatically would see that in the way the verb is presented in the text. You also could see it in the in the fact that they're raising their voices. It's not just because they're a long ways off. They're raising their voices because they understand Jesus, if you don't touch my life, I'm done. They're done. So they ask and they believe Jesus for healing. These men ask Jesus for mercy. See, they believed he could and they believed he possibly would heal them of their terminal disease and their suffering. They believed the stories being told about Jesus and his miracles. Perhaps they had even known the man, the leper in Luke 5, that Jesus touched his skin and he's immediately healed. Perhaps they knew him from their leper community. And they wanted a piece of that. So they asked and they believed Jesus for the healing. His transformation was undeniable. And like these lepers who were healed, when Jesus forgives a man, a woman or a child of sin, there is an undeniable transformation that takes place. That old sin that you, you once had and that old nature you once modeled, that old lifestyle goes away, and it's replaced with a new life, and it's replaced with a new lifestyle. That's what 2 Corinthians 5:17 tells us, "The old has passed. Behold, all has become new. There's a transformation. Here's what we have in the church today. We have people saying, "I'm a follower of Jesus. I love Jesus. I've been transformed by Jesus." But if you did a serious assessment of their own lives, you would see little to no transformation. You just see people that said words, made professions, talked the talk, did the thing. Here's a man that asked Jesus, "Believe Jesus." And Jesus did something monumental. So Jesus tells these men to go and show themselves to the priest. They did just that. So while stumbling down the road, you mean, think about it. You've got toes that have fallen off. You've got skin that's just hanging. You've got all that. It's not, a, it's not a fast walk to wherever the priest is. They're stumbling down the road, and that healing takes place. And all of a sudden, man, a miracle becomes evident. Again, Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you believe or if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you will be saved. So saving faith is believing that Jesus, as the Savior, has paid your sin debt upon the cross and he's been raised from the dead as the conqueror of death. We just baptized two two guys this morning. You know what that baptism pictures? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Uh, Jesus, who went to the cross, was Crucified. He was literally killed. He was put in a grave. As we put a person under the water, it's a picture of his death and his burial. As we bring that person out of the water, it's a picture of the fact that Jesus is no longer in the tomb. He's resurrected to everlasting life. It's also a picture of that person who has faith into Jesus, the fact that they have died to their sin. They have died in Jesus Christ. And so as we put that person under the water, as I put Easton under the water this morning, it's a picture of Easton who has died to his sin. He's been buried in that sin, but he's been resurrected to new life because Jesus has changed his life. That's what saving faith is. Now I gotta hurry. There's the third action. A grateful faith adores Jesus with a humble and grateful heart. Ten lepers are healed of leprosy, but interestingly, only one returns to express gratitude, to say thank you, Jesus. He's a Samaritan. What does that mean? He's an outsider. The miracle of his healing necessitated two thank yous. Luke tells us that the first thank you he offers is he praised God. The second thank you he offered was he comes and he bows before Jesus' feet and is expressing his gratitude. Here's what we know of this young Samaritan, this new believer in the faith, this new follower of Jesus. He didn't yet have his theology formed. You say, what do you mean by that? To praise God the Father and to praise Jesus Christ is to praise the same God. That's what's happening here. And so he does what he knows. He he expresses thank you to the Father because he knows that whatever Jesus is doing is an extension of the ministry and the love and the grace of Almighty God. And, And so Jesus for him is probably just a mediator. He's just a prophet. He's just a teacher. He's a miracle worker. But he knows God's behind it. And so he praises the Father and then he comes and says thank you Jesus for that. Today we understand that Jesus is God. He is the Savior. He is our mediator between us as sinful humanity and God the Father. This man adores Jesus with a humble and grateful heart. Why is that? It's because the Lord had changed his life. And because of that reality, this man could not help but adore him from this humble and grateful disposition. What does Luke want us to see here? He wants us as his readers to identify with the Samaritans' faith. He wants his readers to adore Jesus out of a humble and grateful heart. His grace and his mercy deserve it. It's interesting as you look at this that Jesus does not demand praise and adoration, but when he sees that just one man returns, he says, Where, where's the other nine? Why, why didn't they turn? I, ten came, ten were healed, one returns to express gratitude. Where are the ten? Where are they that been healed? Why is it that just the Samaritan has returned? He didn't demand it, but he expects it. Why does he expect it? It's because everything Jesus does in the life of a human being is worthy of his glory. It's worthy of his adoration. It's worthy of his praise because Jesus never does anything that's insignificant. Where are you at this morning? Coffee's back there. I'm almost done, so maybe we can get through it. But man, that's that's something to get excited about. What has Jesus done in your life that's worthy of his praise? Pastor, man, I tell you, my wife and I, we were, we were at odds a couple years ago, and, and man, if it wasn't for the grace of God and the people He brought into our lives, we would be divorced today. Is that your story? You have grounds to praise the Lord for that. Pastor, I, I was a hellion. You know, I was destined to a place of eternal hell and damnation. My life was horrible, miserable. I, I was just a wreck, and Jesus met me, and I've never been the same since. Is that your story? Is that your story? I will teach you. I may have to be here 20 years. I will teach you to be responsive. (laughs) 20 more years. Probably take that long. What's your story? Jesus expects those that he has changed by his power to never get over him and his work. You gotten over the work of Jesus in your life? It's easy to do. So easy. So easy for us to forget who we were and what we were like before Jesus. It's so easy for us to not allow him to change us the way he wants to, so that we really never get a lot of, uh, of parity. Or, 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 I shouldn't say parity, that's the wrong term. A lot of uh, distinction between the two. Right? See, if you're not walking in ongoing sanctification in your life, you really have nothing much to praise Jesus for because he hasn't done a whole lot. Not that he doesn't want to, not that he's not striving, but because you're just not letting him do it. Here's a man who was absolutely brought from death to life, and he couldn't get over it. Now, we just get this glimpse, this small glimpse at the beginning of his faith, but i got to believe that to the day he died, he never got over that. I was once dead. I was once decaying. I was a corpse walking around. People ran for me. I was outside the community. I had no hope. I was cut off. But Jesus met my life. changed me, and I've never been the same since. All ten were exposed to Jesus. All ten were healed of leprosy. The sentence of death they all had received when that diagnosis came. We've seen the spot. Now you've got to live outside the camp. And then they met Jesus. And all ten were brought back in. All ten had a hopeful future. All ten could say, I have the propensity to live a long life and see my grandchildren and my grandchildren's children. Oh, it's that glorious thing. I can't wait to be a grandpa. I'm not hurrying my daughters up for that. They're a little young. But I can't wait. I think I'm going to be the greatest grandpa. My wife's going to be the greatest nanny, mimo. I don't know what we're going to call her, but I don't know what that term's going to be. But it ain't grandma and it ain't granny. But... Um... It's one of those. Mrs. Taylor. They'll call her Mrs. Taylor. I can't wait for that. Here are men who have a new hope in their life. They thought they were dead because they were. Then they met Jesus. But not all of them were eternally changed. You see, they met Jesus and he temporally changed their life. He changed their life physically for this world. So we know From history that every single person outside of like two or three, maybe four people in all of the history of humanity faced a physical death, right? Enoch walked with God and he was not. Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind. There there are some people who never faced physical death, but the vast, vast, vast majority of uh, those in history and all of us here, I can dare say, will physically die if Jesus tarries any longer. These men faced death. But they had hope until that day. So they're physically changed, but only one was spiritually changed. How do we know that? It's because we get to verse 19 and Jesus asks the question, where are the other 10 and why are they not here? Why are they not praising God? Why is it only this foreigner? And he says to them, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Sozo is that Greek word. It means to save. It means to deliver. So when Jesus said, go and show yourself to the priest, they had an opportunity to believe Jesus and to act on his command. They did so. It brought physical healing. But the man who had true faith in Jesus, returns in gratefulness to Jesus, and that is an expression of the fact that when he believed Jesus on the road for his physical healing, he was believing on Jesus for his spiritual healing. So he died physically, but he never will die spiritually. I don't know what happened to those other nine. We don't know anything about them. I just got to believe that at some point, I, I want to hope, but I got to believe at some point, all of them just continue to direct Or uh, reject Jesus. And they're probably crying out from the pits of hell today saying, I wish I would have believed Jesus. But that Samaritan, you will get to shake his hand one day and say, glory to God. Your story encouraged me. Your story spoke to me. Your story, God, used to draw me to faith in Jesus, to deeper faith in Jesus. Your story helped me to be a grateful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you responded in faith. You responded and Jesus gave you new and eternal life. Because you never got over that, I was encouraged to never get over what Jesus had done for me. This morning, may we never get over that. This morning, may we understand that Jesus is good and he's gracious and he's merciful and he calls to us. I'm going to give in a gospel invitation this morning, similar to what we do every Sunday. But here's what I want you to understand. If you've never said yes to Jesus, like Easton and Kenny have, the five that we baptized last week, if you've never confessed your sin, believe Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin and trusted him as Lord and Savior this morning. That's what you need to do. You need to come to Jesus today. You say, how do I do that? Well, it's not through walking an aisle. It's not through taking the preacher by the hand. It's not through saying a simple prayer or a set of words. It's none of those things, but it is an attitude. It is a disposition. It is you confessing your sin. It is you turning from your sin. It is you turning to Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin as Lord and as Savior. So this morning, as we stand in just a moment and we sing a song, this is an opportunity for you to come and say, Pastor, I want to do what you've talked about this morning. I need to do that. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to pass you off to one of our elders or our elder's wife or one of our encouragers, and they're going to walk you through the gospel, a little bit more detail of uh, uh, of what I've talked about this morning, and help direct you to decision you have to make for yourself. Where you say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sin as I believe in you. And you become a new Christian, right? Some of you, you've been attending our church for a long time. Maybe it's been two weeks. I don't know. Kenny, man, he joined our church really fast. I mean, most people don't do that. Most of you said of distance and you're like, I'm going to just kind of wait and figure this thing out. But man, Kenny's jumped in with both feet. It doesn't matter how long you've been coming here, but if the Lord's put on your heart, I need to put some skin in this game called this local church. You need to come this morning. and Just let me know that. We'll begin that process of talking to you about what membership means here. Here's another thing we need to do this morning. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus and the Lord this morning has just impressed upon your heart that you've forgotten your first love. You're just walking at a guilty distance. doesn't mean you're the vilest of sinners. You're just walking at a distance. You're not walking in step of the Lord. And this morning, this is a great opportunity, perhaps, for you to come and just get on your knees and say, Lord Jesus, I'm not where I need to be. I'm not where I want to be, except for right here in humility, bowing at the feet of Jesus. Right? So pray with me. Father, this morning. Your grace and your mercy are good. Your word tells us they are new every morning. It speaks of the idea that we can never exhaust it. The Bible tells us where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. We're grateful for that truth and that reality. Many of us in this room are followers of Jesus and I pray that this morning we've been reminded and invigorated to lean into that life that Jesus has given us. And Father, I pray for the believer this morning who's been walking at a little bit of a guilty distance and I pray that whatever's necessary, that person will get back in step. You've never left them. You've never forsaken them. They are the one. That's, that person is the one who has walked at a distance. Father, may we run and be near. And so, Father, if confession needs to happen, I pray it would. If repentance needs to happen, I pray that it would. Give us the faith to do that. I pray for those who are outside a relationship with Jesus. They're one of the ten lepers. Today, you're speaking grace and mercy over their life. You're calling them to yourself. May they respond in faith and with repentance. And like this Samaritan leper, may they come back and believe on Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord, help us to respond this morning. I pray for those who need to join this church, need to begin that process, because you have told them, hey, this is the place for you. This is where you need to place your life. This is where you need to place your family. This is where you need to grow amongst this community of believers. Lord, you've brought so many into the life of our church over the last eight years, and I am grateful for that. I'm grateful that you're not done. This county needs jesus and we are just a vessel as many other churches are used to reach so many people here as well as there so god draw us to that draw those who need to join our church this morning this time is yours may we respond with faith this morning we pray in jesus name amen Would you stand? we trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today if you have just made a decision to follow jesus or if you would like to pray with someone Or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.